The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hey, everybody. How are you doing tonight? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome, 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 welcome. So glad that you're here. Uh, Plenty of things to discuss this evening. Plenty, plenty of things to discuss. So be sure to hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, and hit the notifications bell. Wow, so much has happened. It has been a wild, wild uh, day and a half or a few days or whatever it is. So yeah, folks, great. Glad to be here. Um, Just making sure we're streaming on all platforms at this point. And we totally are. We totally are. And wow. So I think we will start with the uh, with the introduction. Spoken of the American century, I say that the century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A radical redistribution of economic power. I mean, we know that racism is just is, is a byproduct of capitalism. Everything would be all right if everything was put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the masses. We need a government of action. So, welcome everybody. Uh, A lot's been going on. A lot of stuff has happened. So, the way we generally roll here is that I give my opening remarks, and then my opening remarks are followed uh, by a roll call. And then that roll call is followed by me answering your super chat questions for the rest of the evening. So, if there's something you would like me to talk about in the second half of the show, and that's when this show gets good, by the way. That's what a lot of people love is when I just start riffing and answering people's questions, right? My opening remarks, I mean, people generally enjoy those too, um, but people often really, really like it when I'm just riffing off Super Chat. So if you've got a question you want me to answer, by all means, shoot me a Super Chat. I'll be writing them down as the show goes along. And then from there, uh, I will answer them in the second half of the show right after we do our roll call where I call you all out as I see your names and locations. And that's the way it's going to work. Um, it's been a wild few days. A lot of things have happened. Um, a lot of things have happened. I've got a lot to talk about. Um, so yeah, if you hit that like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. A lot of people are complaining that they haven't received the notifications about this show, which is not surprising given the algorithms and who controls them, etc. So if you want to make sure, be sure to come back and crush that, crush that, uh, that, you know, that subscribe button, crush that notifications bell, make sure that you are here. And if you really want to make sure you hear about me, go and make sure you're on Rockfin. 
Go and make sure you're on Rockfin. We are now streaming on Rockfin. Eventually, they will throw us off of this platform. So it's only a matter of time. So if you really want to be in this for the long haul, go to Rockfin. And if you really want to be in this for the long haul, become a Patreon supporter. I do an exclusive stream every month for my Patreons. I send them all copies of my books. Uh, you know, as soon as they come out, uh, you get one. All of my Patreons are shortly getting a copy of the new pamphlet, The Ideological Foundations of the City Building Tendency. So, yeah, uh, there are many ways to get involved with our community and to stay part of our community. Um, so, there you go. Folks, I am happy. Let me repeat that I am happy. And I know there's probably people listening to this saying, oh, my God, how can that guy be happy? We're on the brink of World War III. Oh, my goodness. What, what in the world is this guy happy about? Oh, my God. We're in an economic crisis and people are hungry and starving on the streets and there's a war about to break out. How can he be happy? How can this guy be happy? What in the world is he happy about? Well, folks, I often talk to you about all the bad things that happen in the world. And if you only focus on the bad things, uh, you're never going to be happy. You have to learn to celebrate the good things. You must learn to celebrate the good things that happen. And today and yesterday, there is something good to celebrate in the universe. And that is that the people of Donetsk and the people of Lugansk, the people of the regions in eastern Ukraine, the Donbass, those folks have finally been heard by the world. The world has been forced to talk about what only communists and only radicals were talking about. For the last seven years, the whole world is having to acknowledge the truth of what's been happening. Folks, in 2014, the United States overthrew the government of Ukraine. The USA pumped all kinds of money into protests to destabilize Ukraine and overthrow Yanukovych, the elected president and install a government made up of ultra-nationalists and extremists based in the Western regions. A phone call was even leaked revealing the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, where she blatantly, blatantly picked the next president. Writing it down. But she picked the next president. She said, I like Yats. I like Yats. And that's on the phone call that was released. You heard the USA pick who the new president would be after the ultra-nationalists toppled the government. And of course, the people in eastern Ukraine, the people in Donbass, immediately got quite a bit upset about this. Why? 
Because in the eastern regions of Ukraine, there are two political parties that are popular. And those political parties in the eastern regions of Ukraine were only popular in the eastern regions. They were parties that weren't quite popular in the western parts of the country. Ukraine has long been a politically polarized country. Really, since the fall of the Soviet Union, it's been deeply polarized as a country. And in the eastern regions of Ukraine, there are two political parties since the fall of the Soviet Union that have been very popular. The first one is called the Party of Regions. The Party of Regions, and they are a Slavic nationalist party. They sympathize with Russia. They are Orthodox Christians and conservatives, and they are popular in the eastern regions of Ukraine, not popular in the other regions of the country. And the second was the Communist Party of Ukraine, the Communist Party of Ukraine, the party that said the fall of the Soviet Union was a disaster, that upheld the Soviet Union, that upheld the legacy of Marx and Lenin and Bolshevism and the defeat of fascism, etc. And immediately, when this radically anti-Russian government was installed in Kiev, the people of eastern Ukraine got scared. And they said, the people in the west of the country, they hate us. People in the west of the country want to slaughter us. The people in the west of the country, these fanatics, they hate us. And then, you will recall, after that, there was talk of banning the Russian language banning their language from the educational system. And then the ultra-nationalists, the privy sector, the right wing of eastern, of Western Ukraine, they started tearing down World War II memorials. Memorials to the fight against fascism were getting torn down. And these far-right extremists who marched around with, you know, tiki torches, just like Charlottesville neo-Nazis, they were in power, and they even set up their own division of the Ukrainian military called the Azov Battalion, an officially ultra-nationalist faction that used the Nazi lightning bolts as their symbol. And the people of eastern Ukraine were very, very afraid. And so they declared independence. They broke away. They said, we're not part of Ukraine anymore. We declare the Donetsk People's Republic. We declare the Lugansk People's Republic. They separated from Ukraine. And when they separated from Ukraine, nobody listened to them. Russia had to be very careful. While Russia talked about the situation in the eastern regions, Russia didn't want a new world war. So they had to be very, very careful in how they conducted themselves. Russia didn't recognize them. The rest of the world didn't recognize them. Now, my student organization, the student group that I was help, I helped set up, I was never a member of it, but I helped set it up, Students and Youth for a New America, we actually got an invitation. And some of our members went to Donetsk, to people's, you know, the people's republics. They went to Lugansk, they went to Donetsk and met with the peoples of these republics and saw how these people are living. And saw that these people are communists. I mean, they're marching with red flags. They're praising Stalin. Uh, you know, they are, they are proud of the Soviet Union, proud of communism, opposed to Western capitalism. Yeah, they're not into gay marriage. Yeah, they're not into abortion. They're socially conservative. But they 
definitely consider themselves to be the inheritors of Bolshevism and Marxism-Leninism and Stalin. They're proud of their Russian heritage. And those folks, um, those folks, they've you know set up institutions to provide health care and jobs for the people. They've set up these community assemblies like workers' councils. And they held out. And in 2015, the following year, the Minsk Agreement was signed. And the Ukrainian government was supposed to start recognizing them and gradually bringing them back into the political process, respecting their rights and bringing them back into the government. And that didn't happen. Didn't happen. And I talked about, I talked about the Donbass, and I talked about Lugansk and Donetsk, but nobody else did. I talked about it. Tankies talked about it. Marxist-Leninists talked about it. But nobody else talked about it. And then they shelled the eastern regions. They started bombing these people, you know, unloading, you know, mortars and bombings and, you know, shellings. You know, they, they were attacking civilian areas and killing people. And I talked about it. We talked about it sometimes on RT, but nobody talked about it. Nobody seemed to talk about it. Russia said, okay, we've got this Minsk agreement. We're going to gradually move these people back into being treated as equal citizens of Ukraine. Uh, and eventually they'll get their autonomy and they'll be back in the government. They'll be back in the government. Right. They'll be back in the government. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen in 2015. It didn't happen in 2016. It didn't happen in 2017. Didn't happen in 2018, didn't happen in 2019, didn't happen in 2020, didn't happen in 2021, and now it's 2022. And the Minsk agreements that were supposed to de-escalate tensions in the eastern regions, that were supposed to respect the rights of these Russian-speaking people, that was supposed to ensure that these people would be represented in the government, would not have their political rights trampled, haven't been implemented. What has happened? The United States has piled more and more lethal weapons into Kiev and into the far right wing extremist ultra nationalist government in Kiev. And Vladimir Zelensky got elected, and he was somebody who was seen as somebody who might hold back these far right wing extremists, these ultra nationalists. And he tried, and they threatened to overthrow him. And they had right-wing rallies against him. And the USA continued to pile lethal weapons into Kiev. And then the government in Kiev, this ultra-nationalist, anti-Russian government, announced it was considering joining NATO. It was going to become an official member of the NATO alliance. Russia had been promised that NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, would not move one inch east from Germany. And it kept expanding. And Russia said, okay, 
we've given you seven years to implement the Minsk agreement. You haven't done it. And we have said over and over again, we don't want NATO, the NATO alliance. And if you're a member of NATO, that means you have a whole bunch of U.S. and NATO troops on your soil. You have to buy all kinds of U.S. weapons. It's a military alliance. We don't want NATO countries right on our border. And now, not only have you not implemented the Minsk Agreement, not only have you not brought the peoples of Donetsk and Luhansk into the political process, but to top it all off, you're now talking about bringing this fanatically anti-Russian government that contain and has an actual Nazi division of the military called the Azov Battalion, you're thinking about bringing them into the NATO alliance and making them full-fledged NATO states and setting them up on, on our border. Plus, you have drones. You've, you know, this Kiev government had been buying drones from Turkey and flying them over and attacking the people in Lugansk, shelling the people in Lugansk. Russia, Russia finally... Finally, on Monday, yesterday, said, we recognize the republics of Donetsk and Lugansk. And Russia recognized these two countries, these two republics. It recognized them. And it said that these two governments, led by communists, led by communist parties, that overthrew and rejected a fat regime that entered power on alliance with Slavic nationalists and with others that proud of their Russian heritage, proud of the defeat of fascism, have pictures of Lenin and Stalin on display, waved the Soviet and red flags. These people are legit. They are the government of Lugansk and Donetsk. And for that, I applaud Russia. Russia is absolutely doing the right thing. Russia is doing exactly the right thing. And it's about time. It's about time. The people of Lugansk and Donetsk have been begging them to do this, begging them to do this. For seven to eight years, they have been asking for Russia to recognize them. And now Russia has recognized them. And that is a good thing. It is a great thing. And we should be overjoyed that the cries of the working families, the cries of the people of Eastern Ukraine have been heard. They have been heard. No longer have they been ignored. They have been heard and the world is hearing them. It's not just in Moscow. The name Donetsk People's Republic and Lugansk People's Republic is ringing throughout the world. In every corner of the planet, there's nobody who doesn't know about these republics. And Nicaragua has recognized them. And Venezuela has recognized them. And the world is coming together and saying these countries led by communists, led by Marxists who are proud of their heritage, who have rejected a fascist neoliberal NATO regime, they have a right to exist. And I applaud that. We should all be celebrating. This is a great moment. And Russia has said they have the right to send military support to the people. And I, we should be applauding that just as loudly. This is a moment of validation for tankies. We were right. We were right. They were wrong and we were right. Got a couple super chats to catch up on.
All the stuff I was going to talk about, but that's okay. That's all right. All right. Caught up on super chats there. But no, this was a good moment. This is a moment to celebrate that the people of Donetsk, the people of Lugansk have been heard. They have been heard and the world can't ignore them anymore, and the world is recognizing them and standing with them, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. We should be celebrating that right now. And, you know, it's crazy the way they're portraying this. They're saying that this constitutes Russia invading Ukraine. But, uh, you know, in the, last, in the last few days, the people of Donetsk and Luhansk, they've been fleeing, right? Because there's, there's a fear that there's about to be a lot of fighting there. There's been a lot of explosions. There's been shelling, you know, and attacks coming. And they, part of the reason Russia took this move right now is because it appeared uh, that there was going to be an all-out attack by the Azov battalion and by the, uh, the Ukrainian, you know, military. They were going to go in and, and crush the republics. And so Russia basically had no choice but to recognize them and offer them protection. And you know, at the moment that, uh, that this is happening, you know, the civilians there, the women, the children, uh, you know, they, they were fleeing. They didn't want to get caught up in the war. Where were they fleeing to? Russia. They were getting on buses and going to Russia. And they've got special dormitories for them to stay at in Russia. They're being provided with food and financial assistance in Russia. Now, folks, if, if this was Russian imperialism, as we are being taught, if this is Russia acting as an occupier, right? If your country was, if the United States was attacked by Germany and we were fleeing from that, would we all go to Germany? No, right? Uh, you know, if, if Russia is the aggressor here, why are all the refugees going to Russia? Okay, there are 4 million people who live in these regions. They're fleeing now. They don't want to be killed. And they're all going to Russia. Folks, if this was an occupation, if this was colonization by Russia, they wouldn't be going to Russia. They'd be going the other way. They'd be going to Kiev, right? And the narrative we're getting from Western media is, oh, this is Russia taking over these regions. Oh, well, then why aren't all the people there running to Kiev? Why aren't all the people there running, running into the other part of Ukraine? Right. That's what they would do. Right. If some country was coming to take over the United States and I was here in New York City um, and, and I was trying to get away from them, I wouldn't run to the country taking me over. I would run to another part of the United States. But these people aren't doing that because they haven't recognized the government of Kiev for a long time. They do not identify with the regime in Kiev. They identify with Russia. They sympathize with Russia. They are proud of their heritage. And now that there's big fighting escalating and they're being shelled and attacked, where are they fleeing to? Russia. So this whole narrative that you have in your head, that this is colonization, doesn't make any sense. You don't, you know, if you're being colonized by a country and you're running away as a refugee, you don't run to your colonizer. It's, it's a ridiculous claim to make. Show me, 
show me the people in in Donetsk or Luhansk who are resisting the occupier, right? Where are the people saying, no, no, we don't want Russia's support. No, we want to be part of the Kiev government. Nowhere. Nowhere can you find this because the people there already had their resistance. They already rose up against their occupier. Their occupier is in Kiev. Their occupier is the U.S. NATO regime. That's who their occupier is. And they have already risen up against their occupier. They have already risen up to stand against their occupier. And now they are getting recognition for their righteous revolt. That's what's going on. And so everything that you're hearing about this is completely delusional. You know, this isn't, uh, this isn't, you know, when the USA invaded Iraq, did all the Iraqis flee to America? No, there were a lot of refugees. They didn't flee to America. And did the Iraq, what did the Iraqis do? They started resisting. You had resistance to the foreign occupier. There is no resistance in Donetsk. In fact, it's the opposite. In Donetsk and Luhansk, there's fireworks going off. People are crying. They're so happy. They're jumping up and down and celebrating because they have been asking for this for eight goddamn years. They have wanted recognition. So everything you think you know about this, everything you see in mainstream media is wrong. All right. I mean, the, the, the way they are portraying this, if this was if this was Russian colonialism, Russian imperialism, Russian conquest. Right. You know, it would be a totally different story. The people wouldn't be fleeing to Russia for safety. The people wouldn't have fireworks going off to celebrate the entrance. And on top of that, uh, they would be forming militias to resist Russia, not not having the militias they already have resist Kiev. The whole way you understand this is wrong. The whole way you understand this is wrong. And, uh, you know, we've got a lot to deconstruct here. In my opening remarks, I'm going to deconstruct some of the falsehoods that we've heard about this. Um, you know, I am going to I'm going to take apart some of the myths we've heard about this. Um, but since I, I was attacked by a rather prominent individual recently, I thought it might be fun to take apart this rather prominent individual. Um, and that is Kyle Kalinsky of Secular Talk, a popular YouTube channel. He attacked me. And, you know, I think I put Kyle Kalinsky in a little bit of a different category than Jabba the Vosh, right? Jabba the Vosh. I hate Russia. I like Jabba the Vosh is basically just revealing himself. Everything I've said about him, that this guy is being directed by somebody and he's just a pro-imperialist stooge. Uh, and that's all being confirmed. His Look at his Twitter right now. He's got a fucking Ukrainian flag on there. All right. He has got a literal Ukrainian flag on there. I mean, he's become the Azov battalion propagandist. I mean, he's making no bones about it. He's called for, quote unquote, starving out Russia. Vosh is just a straight up pro-imperialist show. But I don't put Kyle Kalinsky in the same category. Kyle Kalinsky is different than that. See, Kyle Kalinsky is critical of U.S. foreign policy, and that is to his credit. And he has challenged Vosh on some of these points and all of that. The thing about Kyle Kalinsky is that he falls into this trap, and it's this trap that a lot of people fall into, and they think they can gain credibility by distancing themselves. Right? This is, it's a really, it's a delusion, right? It's like, okay, you know, if I can make sure no one thinks I'm as radical as Caleb, then I can get away with being more critical 
of U.S. foreign policy. So if I if I make clear, if I if I call Putin a scumbag, I denounce Russia, I, I if I if I if I repeat some mainstream media talking points, that'll give me ground that I can, you know, repeat some, you know, you I can repeat some criticisms of the United States and get away with it. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. You just look weak. Does not work. For years, communists have tried this. Well, you know, I'm a communist. Yeah, I'm against capitalism, but I'm not like the bad ones. You know, I'm not like the Soviet Union. I'm not like China. I'm not like Venezuela. No, I'm a good communist. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I, oh, oh, it doesn't work. Oh, I don't want the USA to invade Iraq. Oh, I hate Saddam Hussein. Yeah, he's a mass murderer and a terrorist, and he eats babies alive and he gasses children. And but I, 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 I don't. I, I, I'm against the war, but I don't like Saddam Hussein. Oh, oh, I, I don't want the USA to overthrow Venezuela. But oh, I hate Maduro. He's trying to pull one of these, and it doesn't work. And you just kind of looking, looking pathetic. And that's what Kyle Kalinsky looks like in this clip. He looks pathetic. He looks downright pathetic. But we're gonna play the clip. We're going to talk about why not only does he look pathetic as he tries to play this game where he tries to be, you know, on both sides, um, but we're also going to talk about why he's wrong. He's just darn wrong. So we're going to we're going to watch just a little bit of what Kyle Kalinsky had to say about him here. Who you shouldn't be. OK. Um, this guy, Caleb Moppin, he said the following. What aggression? I think you are confused. The Kiev government's aggression against the peoples of Donbass is reprehensible. Russia coming to their aid is a good thing. So this is literally just spinning the invasion of a sovereign country as defensive. Like, it's not calling a spade a spade. This this guy is so anti-U.S. imperialism that he's pro-Russian imperialism. That's it. That's my honorable mention on secular talk. So uh, you can now tell people I'm watching Caleb Maupin as seen on secular talk. Um, so there you go. Uh, there you go. I am, um, I, am, I am immortalized on the great secular talk of Kyle Kalinske. But there's, there's a lot wrong with what he said. First of all, first of all, did he in any way present an argument that what I said was false? No. Right. I said that the government in Kiev is attacking the peoples of Donetsk and Luhansk, which they are. And in fact, Kyle Kalinsky himself has admitted in many other videos. So nothing I said there was wrong. And so then he says, but he's so anti-U.S. imperialism that he's supporting Russian imperialism. And that that is something we need to talk about. What is imperialism? What is imperialism? Imperialism is not a policy. Imperialism is not when you send troops into a country. Imperialism is not the same thing as colonialism. Imperialism is an economic system. Imperialism is capitalism in its monopoly stage. Vladimir Lenin wrote a very important book called Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. Imperialism is not a noun, it is a verb. Imperialism is an economic system where countries around the world are kept poor so that Wall Street and London can stay rich. Imperialism is a system in which finance capital becomes dominant over industrial capital. 
bankers start to dominate the world. And bankers begin to carve out spheres of influence. It's monopoly capitalism, where a few trusts, syndicates, and cartels dominate the economies of entire countries and then spread their tentacles across the planet, keeping countries from developing. Imperialism is when the British Empire went to India and burned down all the textile looms and forced India to import their cloth from Britain. Imperialism is NAFTA going to Mexico and putting all the Mexican farmers out of business and forcing the people of Mexico who've been growing their own food for thousands of years, long before Christopher Columbus came, forcing them to import their food from American agribusiness. Imperialism is Africa. Imperialism is, you know, Nigeria being the top oil exporting country in Africa, having the most and exporting the most of a very valuable commodity on the world markets, but still being a country that's dirt poor because their oil is run by Exxon, Mobil, BP, Shell, and Chevron. Nigeria does not control Nigerian oil. Nigeria is rich with oil, but the people of Nigeria are poor, and they don't have a functioning educational system. They have mass illiteracy, and they have a low life expectancy. They are poor, though their country is rich. That is imperialism. Uh, Lenin defined imperialism as the export of capital. It used to be that countries exported products. Now they export corporations, corporations based in Western capitalist countries spread out across the world and dominate the economies of the entire world. That is imperialism. Imperialism is monopoly capitalism. It is imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, capitalism in its monopoly stage. And I'm actually going to read you. I'm going to read to you what Vladimir Lenin himself defined imperialism as, and you can read about it in our textbook, We Are City Builders, the Center for Political Innovation Educational Manual. We actually have the actual definition, the verbatim definition of imperialism that Vladimir Lenin gave. This is what Vladimir Lenin said that imperialism is. Quote, imperialism is a specific historical stage of capitalism. Its specific character is threefold. Imperialism is monopoly capitalism, parasitic or decaying capitalism, moribund capitalism. The supplanting of free competition by monopoly is the fundamental economic feature, the quintessence, quintessence of imperialism. Monopoly manifests itself in five principal forms. One, cartels, syndicates, and trusts, the concentration of production has reached a degree which gives rise to these three, these monopolistic associations of capitalists. Two, the monopolistic position of big banks, three, four, or five giant banks manipulate the whole economy of America, France, and Germany. Three, the seizure of sources of raw material by the trusts and financial oligarchs. Finance capital is monopoly, industrial capital merged with bank capital. Four, the economic partition of the world by international cartels has begun. There are already over 100 such international cartels which command the entire world market and divide it amicably among themselves until war redivides it. The export of capital 
as the distinct as distinct from the export of commodities under non-monopoly capitalism is a highly characteristic phenomenon and is closely linked with the economic and territorial partition of the world five the territorial partition of the world is completed that is what vladimir lenin said that imperialism is imperialism is an economic system in which big banks dominate the world monopoly capitalism trusts, cartels, and syndicates. One of the talking points you'll get from the libertarians is they say, well, we don't live in real capitalism anymore. It's crony capitalism. Well, actually, it's a stage of capitalism called imperialism, right? There's competitive capitalism. There is industrialization, industrial capitalism. And we live in an era of monopoly capitalism, where trusts, cartels, and syndicates dominate the world, where bank capital is merged with industrial capital, forming finance capital, where cartels, trusts, and syndicates are carving out the world into spheres of influence. That's what Lenin understood imperialism to be, a stage of capitalism. That's what it is. And it is defined by the export of capital, meaning that these corporations that are based in Western capitalist countries start exporting not products, but themselves. They start to export their enterprise, dominating the monopoly and monopolizing the markets of other countries. That's what imperialism is. And Russia's not doing that, right? Russia's not doing that. I, I don't see, I, I'm, I, you know, I mean, I mean, do you think that, uh, you know, the, the, people of, um, the people of Donetsk, the people of Lugansk are unable to start their own businesses or are all having their businesses put out of business and being forced to, to work for Russian corporations? No, actually, it's the opposite. Since the Donetsk People's Republics have declared independence, Russia has been helping the people there to start their own businesses. I can tell you this because we have sent delegates. There are people in the Center for Political Innovation who have gone there and seen this with their own eyes. Russia is loaning money to people in these regions to start their own companies, right? They're helping the people there start their own businesses. They're helping the people there to flourish. And this is not imperialism. This is not imperialism. Imperialism would be going there, putting all the people out of business, forcing them into poverty, forcing them to import all their products from Russia. That's not what they're doing. They're doing the opposite. They want the people in Donetsk and Luhansk to flourish economically. And Russia is making sure that happens. And Russia is, you know, trying to enable the people there to have a better life, to have stability, to have economic opportunity. This is not NAFTA going into Mexico and putting all the Mexican farmers out of business so they import, um, you know, American agribusiness products. No, 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 no. This is not, uh, this is not, you know, Britain going into India and burning down all the textile looms. That's not what's going on here, right? This is a situation where Russia is concerned about fanatical anti-Russian fascists on their border, and the people of eastern Ukraine, led by communists, have risen up against them, and Russia has held off recognizing the new communist-led governments. And finally, and finally, uh, at the, you know, after eight years of waiting, has recognized these communist-led governments. That's what's going on. This is not imperialism. This is not imperialism at all, right? Imperialism is an economic system. It denotes a relationship where a country is being kept poor so that a Western capitalist country and its monopolies can stay rich. It is capitalism in its monopoly stage, and that is not what is happening there, right? 
Imperialism is not sending troops into a country. It's not what it is. And another thing is that, you know, Russia, you know, Putin didn't declare these countries to exist. That's one thing that I've heard. Biden said, you know, who gives Putin the right to declare these new countries? He didn't. He didn't declare them. He could have, you know, in 2014, these people declared themselves and Putin didn't agree with them and didn't recognize them. And he held off for eight years. These people declared themselves. And for eight years, Putin refused to recognize them. And now, now he finally has no choice but to recognize them. I mean, I mean, these people that are saying Putin made this up, they have no idea what they're talking about. Putin didn't make this up. Putin didn't recognize. These people declared themselves. They declared themselves. And Putin said, no, no, I don't recognize you. No, no, I don't recognize you. We got the Minsk agreement. We got the Minsk agreement. I, I'm, I'm not going to recognize you. That'll make America too mad. That'll make Ukraine too mad. Yeah, you know, I'm just, you guys, yeah, you're doing your thing there. I don't recognize you. He did that for eight years. Eight years, he didn't recognize them. And finally, when the Kiev regime was talking about joining NATO, when they were talking about getting nuclear weapons, yeah. Yeah, the government in Kiev, the neo-Nazi government was talking about getting nuclear weapons, talking about joining NATO, shelling these people, slaughtering these people, getting ready for an all-out attack. They played up, you know, for a month practically, they're saying Russia's going to invade Ukraine, Russia's going to invade Ukraine, all to basically try to tie Russia's hands so they could go in and slaughter these people. That's what was happening, folks. Right for the last month, well, they, they've been beating this drum. Russia's going to invade Ukraine. Russia's going to invade Ukraine. Russia's going to invade Ukraine, and it didn't. It hasn't invaded Ukraine. I mean, at this point, there has been no invasion. Why did they say that? It was a strategy. They wanted to play up this idea, get the whole world psyched up. Russia's going to invade Ukraine, so that when the Azov Battalion and the neo Nazis went in there into Kiev and rolled in, Russia would say, oh, shit, if we do this, then we'll invade Ukraine. And then they'll, if we do this, we'll be invading Ukraine. So I guess we can't do that. That's why. That's why. Basically, for a month, the USA has been accusing Russia of planning to invade Ukraine, all because they wanted to be able to set the stage to roll in on Donetsk and roll in on Lugansk and crush these people under their, just, just crush these people and force Russia to stand back and let it happen. That's basically what the United States was planning to do. They wanted to just, you know, they wanted to just, you know, we're going to play up. We're going to make Russia so defensive about Ukraine. We're going to make Russia so scared to have any troops near the border. And when we do that, uh, then, then we can roll in and then we can say, all right, go get them, go get them, Zelensky, go get them. Go get a Mazov battalion and Russia won't be able to do anything. That's what's been going on here. This was a plan from the beginning. It's, it sounds straight out of the Brzezinski chess, chess board, chess game, grand chess board. They sat there and they faked out the world. Russia's about to invade Ukraine. Russia's about to invade Ukraine. Russia's about to invade Ukraine. Does everyone hear this? Russia's about to invade Ukraine. Hey, guys, Russia's about to invade Ukraine. Russia's going to invade Ukraine. Did everyone hear us say this? There's no facts to back it up, but Russia's going to invade Ukraine. And they did that, and they did that for week after week. And then finally, they said, okay, so now everyone's so scared that Russia's going to invade Ukraine. Now you guys can go and kill all the Lugansk people and kill all the Nets people, and they can't do anything about it. Go get them, guys. <laughs> right? Everyone thinks Russia's the bad guy now. And if they if they lift a finger to protect Lonetsk, uh, <laughs> Donetsk or Lugansk, if they lift a finger, uh, then we got them. 
then we got them. Well, didn't work. It did not work. Russia was supposed to be too intimidated by all of this, all of this hype. They were supposed to be too intimidated that when the attack came and when the Azov battalion started moving in and when the shellings started happening, when the car bombings started happening, Russia was supposed to say, well, guys, you're on your own. You're on your own because, you know, they've been telling everyone we're going to invade Ukraine. So if we help you out now, they're going to say we invaded Ukraine. So you're on your own, guys. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Russia said, no, no, not going to work. Yeah, we get what you're trying to do. You're faking out the world so you can go after the people of Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, But yeah, it's not going to work. We're still going to protect these people. And in fact, we are going to confer recognition onto their governments. And that's what's happened. And that's the situation. It's not Russian imperialism. It's not Russian aggression. And, uh, you know, Kyle Kalinsky is kind of pathetically trying to gain credibility. Uh, you know, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. Doesn't know what he's talking about. But I've got a couple other aspects of this I'm going to talk about. I got to write down these super chats first. A couple other things I got to touch on. Um, all righty. All righty, we've got to roll on up here because I got a lot of super chats to write down, but that's okay. That's okay because I always want to answer y'all's questions. So there you go. All righty. All righty. People in Central America flee to the U.S. Oh, come on. That's ridiculous. All right. People in Central America flee to U.S. All right. All right. Okay. Wrote it down. We'll answer that. Uh, tell Vosh I saw fascist swastikas and black suns all over Kiev and Jews visiting Ukraine are frequently attacked. All right. Swastikas all over Ukraine. Jews frequently attacked. Wrote it down. All right. Moving right along. Moving right along. All right. Do-do-do. China's position on Donetsk and Luhansk. Very good. All right. Very good. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. All right. Moving right along. Um, so the U.S. government is supporting fascists in Ukraine. We basically and basically have a captured government. I think we can safely say our government is fascist. No. Okay. All right. Is fascist question. All right. All right. Okay, rolling on down. Oh, is that all of them? Or is there any more that I missed? Just want to write down all the super chats, right? Got to write them down. Sometimes when I'm excited, oh, oh, the majority of Americans support NATO. Americans love war. Okay, that's an odd already. Americans support NATO. Americans love war. All righty. Okay, half true. Uh, what do you say about the argument that the Belt and Road is imperialism? All right, we'll write that down. Belt and Road is imperialism. All right. All right, we'll keep going, keep going. What's going on? Is there any more that I missed? Any more? Or is that the last one? Might not be. I'll just keep going, keep going, keep going. Oh, there's a couple more of them. All right. Thoughts on Bernie Sanders' statement. Bernie's 
statement, writing it down. Next, next, next. CIA and media blaming Russia for Havana syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Blaming Russia for Havana syndrome. Okay. All right. Is that everything? Uh, that is everything. All right. I wrote them all down. That was a lot of super chats to get through, but I was very excited. Very excited. All right. So now oh, opinions on May, May 2nd, 2014, Odessa conflicts. Odessa. Very good. Very, very good. Uh, should tankies use the term global south? South, question mark. All right, got them all, got them all, got them all. All right, now a couple other points I want to address. Putin gave a very good speech, a uh, very good speech, very well thought out, intricate, you know, speech that he gave, uh, you know, on, on before recognizing Donetsk and Luhansk. It was a long speech and it was compared to anything that uh, that any U.S. leader has given. I mean, this was a, a very complex speech. He got into the history of Ukraine how it was formed, uh, and you know what's been happening, and it was hard hitting. This guy did his homework. He brought facts, and he laid it all on the table. I don't know of any U.S. president who has ever given a speech anywhere near as intricate, uh, as well thought out, containing so many facts as what Putin did. Go and watch Putin's speech for yourself. Right? It was a great speech. And for a while, they were showing it on CNN, and then they were like, oh, shit, kill it, kill it. People in America might hear this and realize not only that he actually has a lot of very good points, but also that our leaders are, are fucking retarded and Putin's a genius. You know, I mean, I mean, this is like Putin's a very, very smart man. I have been in the same room as Putin three or four times. He's a very intelligent person. He is not a fool. He's a brilliant, brilliant man, a brilliant strategist, very very well informed about geopolitics, economics. This guy knows his shit and he knows what he's doing. And he rescued Russia from the disaster of the 1990s with economic planning. He developed a model for rescuing Russia's economy with Gazprom and Rosneft. And this guy is a very, very effective strategic uh, negotiator, strategic planner. He's really into geopolitics. He knows his stuff. And Putin Putin, before he recognized, he knew the United States was going to come down on him. He had to explain how he was going to do it. And so he gave a speech. And I have seen so many people misrepresenting this speech. Okay. Is Putin a communist? Of course not. Of course, he's not a communist. Putin is not a communist. If you think Putin's a communist, uh, you are deeply misinformed. Uh, but, you know, Putin is not a communist. And, and it wasn't a communist speech, per se. But the speech said a lot of things that a communist could agree with. One thing that it pointed out was that the fall of the Soviet Union was a disaster for the entire region, right? All my life, I've been told that, oh, communism failed. Communism didn't work. And in 1991, Russia got freedom. It's been so amazing when Russia got free. And, oh, communism was just nothing but starvation and death and misery. That's not what Putin said in his speech. Putin talked about how the Soviet Union built Ukraine. The Soviet Union industrialized Ukraine. The Soviet Union created the modern Ukraine. And in fact, it was Lenin uh, who drew the borders for what is now Ukraine. And then Khrushchev added Crimea and Stalin added some other parts of it. 
and it, and there would not be a country known as Ukraine if it wasn't for the Bolsheviks. That the Bolshevik national policy of recognizing different nationalities is responsible for the creation of modern Ukraine, and the Soviet Union industrialized Ukraine. I bet you didn't know that at one point, Ukraine had the world's largest hydroelectrical power plant. The biggest power plant in the world was in Ukraine. And you know who built it? Stalin. During the five-year plans, they built the Dnieper Dam. The biggest hydroelectrical power plant in the world was built in Ukraine. Under the Soviet Union, Ukraine was fully electrified. Under the Soviet Union, Ukraine was fully industrialized. They wiped out illiteracy. They, they brought running water and electricity to the whole country. The Soviet Union, socialism created Ukraine. And since Western capitalism has come back into Ukraine, um, Ukraine has gotten poorer and poorer and poorer, right? And that the fall of the Soviet Union devastated Ukraine economically. Putin talked about all of that in his speech. You would never, you know, you will never hear that on American television. They never want to acknowledge basic economic data. Ukraine under the Soviet Union, good. Ukraine since the fall of the Soviet Union, bad. That's basic economic data. Life expectancy has gone down. Living conditions have gotten worse. That's a basic fact. If you compare life in Ukraine at the time of the Soviet Union to life in Ukraine, ever since then, life has gotten worse. And poll after poll after poll has shown that Ukrainians, even ones that are virulently anti-Russian, admit that life was better under the Soviet Union. Putin recognized that and said that the fall of the Soviet Union has been bad for Ukraine. It's been bad for the whole region. If that is not a pro-communist talking point, I don't know what is. But everyone's focusing on a point that Putin made criticizing Vladimir Lenin, which is completely fair, right? And I think Putin has a point. Now, obviously, Zhuganov and the leaders of the Communist Party, they don't agree with this. And that's okay. We can disagree, right? But I think Putin has a point when he says that Lenin's obsession with labeling different peoples throughout the Soviet Union as nationalities weakened the Soviet Union. Now, that, that is a point that Putin has, this isn't the first time he said this. He said this many times that, you know, Lenin, right? First of all, under Karl Marx, there was no nationalism. Karl Marx was opposed to all nationalism. He said all, it's just the workers against the bosses. Workers of the world unite. And in the final years of Marx's life, he started to say, maybe I'm wrong about that. Because he realized that the Irish people, the Irish people were being oppressed. And they weren't being oppressed just because they're workers. They were being oppressed on the basis of being Irish, of their Irish nationality. In a lot of cases, they were being oppressed because they were Roman Catholics. And so Karl Marx started to argue that Irish nationalism, even though it wasn't communist, was progressive. And Karl Marx's daughter started wearing a crucifix around her neck to support the Irish people. And in England, in London, they used to hang Irish revolutionary fighters. They used to hang Irish people who had fought for their country. They would drag them to London and they would hang them in the public square. And Jenny Marx, Karl Marx's daughter, put a crucifix around her neck. Protested. Protested. 
against these executions of Irish revolutionaries. And if you can imagine about how unpopular that might be, you know, they're, they're going to drag some Irish revolutionaries into, the, into some big square in London, and they're going to hang them. And there's all these people that are excited to watch them hanged. And you're standing outside there with a sign saying, freedom for Ireland, you're protesting that. That it takes courage. And especially if you're Jenny Marx, the daughter of Karl Marx, you're not born in London. That's some heroic activity. And Karl Marx, in his final years, used to under, came to understand that the Irish people fighting for their national liberation as Irish people, even if they weren't communists, even if they weren't socialists, even if they weren't revolutionaries, I mean, they were revolutionaries, but if they were revolutionaries on their national basis, on the basis of their nationalism, that was correct. And I believe Karl Marx also began to support the people of Poland and in, in their you know, national liberation aspirations. And so Marx died, but Lenin, studying Marx's writings on the Irish question, studying Marx's teachings about Poland and looking into it, Lenin wrote his very famous thesis on the national question. And Lenin argued, he argued that oppressed nations fighting for their national liberation was progressive and should be supported. And he came to that conclusion. And Rosa Luxemburg vehemently disagreed with Karl Marx about that. Rosa Luxemburg said, no, all nationalism is inherently reactionary. All nationalism is inherently reactionary. Um, you know, and she disagreed with him. Uh, a lot of Marxists disagreed with, disagreed with Lenin on that point. But that became the position of the Bolshevik Party, was that all nations have the right to national liberation. And what, what Putin argued in his speech is that that belief that all nations have the right to national liberation, he took it a bit too far. And that when the Bolsheviks came to power in Russia, they went to all the different peoples throughout the Soviet Union and they started declaring them to be nations. And in doing that, he planted the seeds of dividing the peoples of the region, right? For example, Belarus. What is Belarus? What is Belarus? It's white Russia, right? So, you know, it's Russia. It's just white Russia, right? It's just the part of the country, you know, you know, so is Belarus a separate nation? I don't know. I mean, Alexander Lukashenko certainly thinks it does. And I, I wouldn't feel comfortable as somebody who's not from there and doesn't speak the language and has no idea. I would never feel comfortable going up to a Belarusian and saying, you're not a nation. You know, you're just a, it's just a part of Russia. It's white Russia. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that. I don't know enough about it. I'm not from there. All right. I don't know. But it is a little bit weird that Belarus means white Russia. And the Ukrainian language is very close to the Russian language. And, you know, there's Moldova, there's other regions. And basically Putin argued that by going around to all of these groups in the Soviet Union, 
by saying you're a nation and you're going to have your own language and you're going to have, you know, your own national identity. And we're going to give you have a house of nationalities in the Soviet government. We're going to have the, the, the Supreme Soviet on the one hand, and then we're going to have the, the Soviet of nationalities. And we're going to give every nation one of their own seats and they're going to be a nation that by doing this, he wasn't bringing the people together. That's what Putin argued. And that might be right. I don't know. I'm not from there. I don't, I don't, I've, I've met, I've been over there a few times and I don't feel comfortable saying that Putin is necessarily wrong about this. He might be right. He might be wrong. He might be right. You know, but that was a very big part of what the Bolsheviks believed, right? As they referred to the czarist empire as a prison house of nations. And they really believed that one of the main points of their revolution was going to these different nationalities and giving them their own. And these people, they wouldn't even have their own. A lot of them wouldn't have their own written language if it wasn't for the Bolsheviks going to these various nationalities um, and uplifting them on a national basis. And let's not forget that, you know, the most important book written on the question of nationalities was not written by Lenin because Lenin was a Russian. And Lenin was a Russian. He had some Jewish heritage, but he was, he was ethnically Russian for the most part. And Lenin, Lenin didn't feel comfortable writing the book on nationalities. So who wrote it? Stalin. Why? Why did Stalin write the book? The book on the national question published by the Bolsheviks was written by Stalin. And why was it written by Stalin? Stalin wasn't Russian. Yeah, I know that's a shocker, right? How can Stalin not be Russian? He was the leader of the Soviet Union. Stalin wasn't Russian. Stalin was not Russian. Stalin wasn't Russian. Stalin was Georgian. Stalin was from Georgia. And not from the state next to Alabama either. He's from Georgia in Central Asia. Stalin was from Georgia, the oppressed nation of Georgia, which was declared a nation by the Soviet Union, had a seat in the House of Nationalities. Stalin was from Georgia. He was a Georgian. He had a Georgian accent. He spoke the Georgian language, right? Right? Ukrainian SSR. All right. Got it. So everything, everything that, uh, you know, I've seen people, they, they take this. Now, Putin, I, I heard it in the speech I was watching. And he said in the speech, he said, you know, it's so ironic that modern Ukraine was created by the Soviet Union, right? It was Lenin, Lenin, who basically declared, you know, that, that Ukraine would be a separate republic in the Union of Soviet, Soviet republics, uh, and that added certain territory to it. And Stalin added other territory to it. And Khrushchev added Crimea to Ukraine. Crimea would never have been considered part of Ukraine, but, but Khrushchev, for whatever reason, changed the borders of Ukraine and put Crimea in it. And so Putin remarked, he said, it's so funny that these people that are Ukrainian nationalists are constantly talking about decommunization because there wouldn't be a Ukraine if it weren't for communism. Lenin 
The guy who created modern Ukraine, they're tearing down all the statues to him. They're tearing down all the statues to Lenin. And they're tearing down all the statues to Stalin. And they're, they're tearing down all the Soviet memorials. And again, there would not be a modern Ukraine if it weren't for the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union designed it. And he said, so these people really want to decommunize. Uh, maybe we will. And he was hinting at the fact that, uh, that you know, if these people really, really want to completely decommunize, then they'll be absorbed back into Russia. Because, again, it, it's actually a pretty good remark. It's a little bit, it's a pretty sophisticated dig. It's a pretty sophisticated dig. There would be no Ukraine if it weren't for the Soviet Union. If it weren't for Lenin and Stalin and Khrushchev, there would be no Ukraine. And these people are always tearing down the memorials to Lenin and Stalin and Khrushchev and people like that who built modern Ukraine. And he says, so if these people really want to decommunize, maybe we can make that happen. It's a dig. It's a dig. It was brilliant. It's a brilliant dig. Basically, he said, we created your ass. You know, we created your ass. Okay. And, uh, oh, you want to get communism completely out of Ukraine? Well, liquidate Ukraine then because communism made you guys. That's what he's saying. It's a brilliant dig, actually. It's a very sophisticated dig. And and it's a very it's a it's a very good point. And I mean, you know, uh, you know, and with Ukraine threatening Russia, with Ukraine tearing down all the memorials to communism. And he says, eh, you know, uh, I think, you know, you really want to decommunize because uh, we decommunize. Then there's no more Ukraine. That's the point he was making. And that's a fair point, I think. Um, I think it's a fair point. Right. And again, I see that misrepresented. I see, keep seeing this misrepresented uh, online by, you know, people are saying, oh, it was a, a fiery anti-communist speech. Uh, no, it was a speech on the history of Russia and Ukraine. It was a speech about how the fall of the Soviet Union was bad. It was a speech about how Ukraine has economically suffered because of the fall of the Soviet Union. It was a speech about how the crazy anti-communist government in Ukraine is kind of hypocritical. I'm not hearing this as like a crazy anti-communist speech. Now, there were some some things that people have taken issue with about, you know, that, you know, the fall of the czar right now. The czar was actually toppled in the February revolution rather than the October revolution. There's there's things you can nitpick about. OK, you know, and that's that's fine. And that's for the Russians to do. It's not for me to do. I'm not Russian. I'm not Ukrainian. I'm not going to get into that. But it was a pretty damn good speech. You know, I would say that Putin is far smarter than any president we've had in the United States in the last 50, 60, maybe even 100 years. OK, our presidents compared to compared to Putin are dumb. OK, Putin is a very intelligent man. This is a really smart man. He know he think he means what he says and he says what he means. He thinks through things very, very carefully. He's very, very calculated. He knows what he's doing. Uh, and you know, um, you know, there's a reason CNN, you know, they, you know, they were playing him. He was making his points and they're like, kill it, kill it. And they pulled him off of there because he was making sense. Putin was a, and he wasn't even reading from cue cards. People noticed there, he wasn't reading from a teleprompter. He wasn't even reading from a goddamn teleprompter. It's a damn good speech. And you can agree with it. You can disagree with it, but it was a damn good speech. It was very intelligent. He made coherent arguments. And the last thing the U.S. government ever wants you to do is go watch it right now. So if you really want to make Biden mad, you really want to make Donald Trump mad, go and watch that speech because uh, then you'll learn something. That's that's what I've got to say about that. Um, you know, so I thought it was a great speech and uh, it makes a lot of points that CNN doesn't want you to know about. It gets into the history of that whole region in a kind of a, a brilliant way. 
And we all need to just, you know, these are rough times. There's tension between the USA and Russia. We're in the danger of a new war, but we all need to just sit back and be happy about the fact that the people of Donetsk and Luhansk have finally been heard. The people of Donetsk and Luhansk have finally been heard. They've been recognized. There are two new, well, they're not new, but there are two governments led by communists that are now recognized and officially considered, uh, you know, to be, you know, you know, recognized by Russia and recognized by Nicaragua and Venezuela. And we should all be happy about that, right? You gotta, you gotta celebrate the good things in life. Just dwell on the bad. You're going to have a miserable time. So let's all celebrate that. Let's be happy about that. And, um, you know, Zelensky. Um, okay, we'll talk about what motivates Zelensky. Uh, supporting Nazis. Uh, you know, um, we'll talk about that. But anyhow, let's celebrate that and let's uh, let's do the roll call. Names and locations. I'll call you out as I see you. Names and locations. Who's with us tonight? I'm gonna I'm gonna call you out as I see you. Who's with us tonight? Names and locations. Names and locations. All right, all right. So we've got Alan in Utah, Michael in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Tionetsa, California. David in China. Rice from Adelaide, Australia. Ben in Suffolk County. Ben in Denver. Brent in Utah, Sam in Australia, James Larson in Wisconsin, Mike C in NC, Joe Gale in Nassau County, Patrick in Southwest Florida, William Kane in England, Nikolai in Moscow, Bellingham, Washington, Detroit, Michigan, Leipzig, East Germany, George in San Diego, Colorado Springs, Kieran in San Diego, Deborah in Mexico City, Kristen, Kristen in Virginia Beach, George Limerick, Ian in Glasgow, um, Michigan, a better world, Tahaki, Mexico or New Mexico, uh, George in Portland, Oregon, um, you know, uh, Troy and Paris of the Plains, Northern Utah, Naples, Florida, Harold Sullivan, Chris in Salt Lake City, Danny in Boston, Mosin from Iran, Naples, Florida. Uh, we've got Neil Frazier in Hong Kong, Melbourne, Australia, Mindanao to Midwest, Marlin, San Diego City, California. Jude in Tucson, Arizona, Lockport, New York, Celeste, John Celeste, Pittsburgh, grinning guys. Wow. Wow. We got Niles in Michigan, Houston, Texas, R&B. Johnny from the Convo Couch is with us. Check out Convo Couch. It's a great show. They do great stuff there. You know, Pasta and Fiorella, Johnny. Oh, they're great. They're awesome. They are awesome. They are awesome. Chris in Kansas City, Kendall in San Diego, San Diego. Great stuff. Great stuff, folks. Uh, Many Dog, Illinois. Very, very good. Uh, very, very good. All right, folks. We're going to start answering Super Chat questions. That's what we're going to do next. Art Crystal from Fusion City. Art Crystal from Fusion City. Very cool. Jeff in Detroit. Woo! All righty. Uh, Jose Gonzalez in Caracas, Venezuela. Very good. Todd in Northern Canada, Serbia, Kabul. Very, very good. All right, folks, we are going to start, start answering super chat questions because then I got to get home because I've been working a lot lately. I've been coming in early and leaving late. 
And it's all okay because it's my job. And, you know, I like doing my job at times like this because someone's got to stand up to the empire. But it's been some long days, folks. It's been some long days. Before I start answering super chat questions, I'll just be honest with you all. Uh, We need help. We need your help. I I don't know how to say this any other way. We need your help. We're going to have this big event uh, March 12th. Uh, We're going to have a big event in Austin, Texas. It's going to be an awesome event. It's going to be an awesome event. Uh, We're going to have, you know, Jackson Hinkle is going to be there. Samira Khan is going to be there. Uh, You know, uh, you know, Haas from Infrared is going to be there. Peter Coffin and Miss Astronaut Cowboy, uh, they're going to be there. Um, You know, it's, it's going to be quite, quite an event. Um, You know, uh, it's going to be amazing. Um, But uh, we have gotten attention from some people that aren't so good, right? Now, George Galloway is going to give a speech. Uh, you know, he's going to give remarks over video. Tara Reid, the rape victim of Joe Biden, is going to speak over video as well. Joti Brar from the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist, is also going to give remarks over, over video. Um, we may, it looks like we're going to have a video from Max Blumenthal. Max Blumenthal is also giving us a video. So there's going to be some great in-person speakers. There's going to be some great video messages. There's going to be great music. Some musicians are going to perform. It's going to be awesome. Uh, If you can make it, we want you there. March 12th, Austin, Texas. Please come. We want you there. Please come. That said, uh, we have some very serious security concerns, right? I don't want to get into what it's about, um, but, you know, from a couple different places, we have some security concerns. So we're going to do the right thing. I would never want anyone who comes to my event to be harmed or to suffer. So we are going to spend a lot of money on private security. I mean, and people are going to, there's going to be metal detectors and people are going to have their bags checked. And we are going to make sure that this is a safe event. We're going to make sure that no one ruins our party. But in order to do that, we're going to have to spend more money than we usually do for events like Right. Uh, Because we're getting security, you know, concerns because, you know, there are a lot of people who hate us and don't like what we do. And, you know, there's a lot of people that when it gets gets down to it, they're just, you know, well, I don't even want to get into it. I'm not going to get into the specifics of it, but we have some serious security concerns for the upcoming meeting. And we want all of you who attend to be safe. And so because of that, we are going to make sure uh, that we have proper security at the event. Right. I mean, and, you know, I mean, you know, obviously the police are going to be on standby. There'll be police, you know, in the area. But in addition to that, we are going to hire private security guards who know how to get shit done and make sure that everyone's safe. And so because of that, we need your financial support. Um, there's no other way to put it. Uh, we we have to uh, we have to pay for security and uh, security ain't cheap. Uh, so we need you to make a donation. Uh, if you can't make it to the event, please send us a donation. Uh, my PayPal is right below on the YouTube. Uh, you know, you can go to PayPal, Caleb Maupin at gmail.com. Uh, and the link is below. There's the PayPal me thing. We just, we need you to make some, some contributions. Um, you know, you know, we want everyone to be the, who, who's there to be safe and we want to make sure that we don't have a security problem. Um, and we're getting a lot of hate right now because look, because of the fact that, that Russia has taken this bold move and is respecting the rights and there's not really the U S much the USA can do about it. Right. That's the, the funny part of all of this is the United States is like, Oh, if they do this, we, and then, then, Russia did it and they're like, oh shit, what can we do? You know, I mean, I mean, it, it looks like, uh, it looks like we've got some, we've got some security concerns, right? These people aren't tough enough to actually stand up to Russia. They're not tough enough to actually protest against the American government, but they're tough enough to make, you know, crazy threats against us and try to mobilize people against us. So we we're we're going to have a lot of security there. 
right? Like I said, police will be on standby, but we will also have our own security and we're going to make sure that no one who comes to our event is hurt and that no one, you know, gets in and causes a problem at our event. Um, and so because of that, um, it would be really great um, if folks can make a contribution. Now, there's no way around it. There's no, there's no way around asking for your help. So we have to ask for your help. Um, so if you can shoot me a PayPal contribution uh, to help with the security for the event, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, you know, I, I just have to ask you for that. And that's the situation. And we are going to make sure that our event is safe. And that's all we can do. Uh, so there you go. So that's what I just wanted to get out of the way. So if you can please send us a contribution, we would appreciate it. Um, but that said, uh, we're going to start answering super chat questions. All right. Does People's Republic indicate that these are socialist uh, areas? Well, they're led by communist parties. In both Luhansk and Donetsk, the communist party is like the leader of the coalition government that's been formed. I mean, socialist, I mean, uh, there are cooperatives being formed. There are state-run industries. Uh, you know, there are... Um, there are, you know, popular assemblies that have been formed. So, you know, I mean, yeah. Um, does Russia support LGBT rights? All right. There are popular assemblies that have been formed and such. So, I mean, I mean, yes. I mean, you can call them socialist if you want. I think that's a fair assessment of what's going on. I mean, again, these are, you know, there's only 4 million people in the whole area. These are not, you know, highly populated regions, but uh, and, you know, there are, there are people there and the communist party is leading and there are, you know, economic socialist formations there. So I think that that might be fair. All right. Uh, labeling neoliberal capitalism as socialism and communism. Well, what is the trick uh, that the, uh, you know, the, the libertarians, that's how they explain it. Well, it's not real capitalism. It's not real capitalism. It's socialism. Right. And on top of that, then you've got these awful human beings like, you know, AOC and the Antifa and all of them, you got them calling themselves socialists and people don't like them and that makes it worse. Um, but yeah, obviously, you know, we, capitalism is a system in which production is organized for profit. Socialism is when you have a government of action that fights for working families, when the economy is forced to work in the interests of society as a whole. That's socialism. Socialism is when the Production is carried out upon a predetermined plan when the means of production are controlled by society. That's socialism. And we clearly live in a capitalist society. Profits are definitely in command in the United States right now. All right. Putin has said, Stalin, the USSR should have been a single centralized state as opposed to running. It was a voluntary independent. Is Putin right? Or what, what? Okay. All right. Believed SSR should be incentivized. State. Writing it down. All right. Machiavelli, Niccolo Machiavelli, the political philosopher from Italy who wrote The Prince, um, you know, and he wrote strategies for gaining influence in politics. And I don't know that much about him. I'll be honest. I, I read The Prince a long time ago. It's supposed to be a book about politicians and how they operate or something. Um, but um, hmm. yeah, I mean, I don't, I, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I can't really comment on, on Niccolo Machiavelli too much. I mean, uh, you know, there's The Prince, the guide to, you know, political power or whatever, principalities. And I don't know. It's been a long time since I read that stuff. 
um, hypocrisy of demanding an independent Tibet while not recognizing uh, Lugansk. Well, okay, look, you know, okay, right? So, but then, right, that gets complicated because, all right, so the idea is the United States is constantly defending the independence of Taiwan, supposedly, when Taiwan is part of China, but not recognizing the independence of Lugansk and Donetsk, right? Lugansk and Donetsk say they're not part of Ukraine, and the USA doesn't recognize that, whereas they're constantly saying that Taiwan is not part of China, and uh, that's what the United States wants. Yes, that's hypocrisy there. But you have to notice that, right, that, again, right, this is where it all gets murky and complicated. Right. Yeah, that's certainly hypocrisy. When the USA gets up and says, oh, we just want national sovereignty, it's selective, right? It's based on geopolitical circumstances. But also there's debate, right? There, I mean, there are people in Taiwan who feel that Taiwan is not part of China. And there's people in Taiwan who feel that it is part of China. And, you know, there are people, uh, there are there are people in various parts of the world that have different opinions about nationality. And that often the United States selectively interprets those opinions, right? Uh, at one point, the United States was funding Eritrean separatists to fight against the government of Ethiopia. Uh, but now the United States is very hostile to Eritrea because Eritrea is an anti-imperialist state. After Eritrea you know, broke from Ethiopia, some of the like communist groups that were involved you know, got involved in setting up a government. Now the USA doesn't like the Eritrean government. And this is the story of the Cold War. The USA always wants to support the nationality and national independence struggles in countries that are not aligned with it, and then it opposes it. And, you know, this is, this is the, how geopolitics is played. All right, now we're reading materials on forest management. Okay. Forest management in USSR. All right, cool. Uh, good luck with my, with our IRL meetup in Austin, Texas. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. So I hope you're there. I'm really excited about it. I haven't traveled in a long time. I haven't been out. I've not been to Texas since I was a child. So I'm very excited about it. So there you go. Very, very excited. All right. Uh, Putin's comments on Lenin. I addressed that in the opening. I addressed quite a bit of that in the opening. All right. People in Central America flee to the USA. Yeah, the USA is not invading right? It's like these countries have been under the domination of the United States economically for a long time, but it's not like there's a military confrontation, right? If there, if there was a military confrontation going on between the USA and Mexico and the USA was like marching into Mexico with a hostile army, people in Mexico wouldn't flee to the United States. They were running from the United States. They wouldn't run from the United States to the United States. It's a completely valid point, completely valid point, right? You're, you're being semantical about it, but no, at the end of the day, Right. If if the idea is that these people in Donetsk and Luhansk are all fleeing from Putin, why would they be fleeing to Russia? Right. If a, a hostile army is coming into your country, you don't run to the place that hostile army is from. Right. That's that's the point. That doesn't apply to the continuing economic domination of South and Central America by the United States and people you know, from South and Central America coming to the United States to try and earn back some of the money that's been stolen from their homelands. Not the same thing. Not the same thing. That's a disingenuous argument. All right. Um, Shia said, you know, swastikas are all over Ukraine and Jews are frequently attacked. Um, yeah. And I, I want to start. Let's make a list of anti-fascists who never heard of the Azov Battalion. And it's really annoying. 
right? Because all these people are so, everyone's a Nazi nowadays. You know, I'm a Nazi, you're a Nazi, everybody's a Nazi. You disagree with them on one thing. You don't do this. You talk to the wrong person, you're a Nazi. But somehow, you know, all these people, all these Democrats can support a Nazi government in Kiev. And, you know, I mean, it's just, oh yeah, you know, Bosch is calling everybody a Nazi and he's supporting literal Nazis in Ukraine. And he's, you know, that's fine. I mean, I mean, it's, it shows you how ridiculous this is and how selective this is, how selective all of this is, right? Marsh said that a Twitch streamer, Hassan Piker, buying a $2 million house is compatible with Marxism. Well, that is something I agree with Vosh on, actually. Um, but we can talk about that. We'll not talk about Vosh. We'll talk about wealth and socialism. Okay. All right. Um, uh, PayPal G25 to help with security concerns. Thank you, Troy. I really appreciate that. Um, it needs to be done. Just wanted to get a clarification, not arguing. Okay. All right. No problem, junkie. All right. Um, but there you go. All right. Next question. Um, but yes, I mean, you know, the blind spot for Nazis, that's a big thing. China's position on Donetsk and Luhansk. Well, China, China has not fully, has not condemned Russia for making this recognition, but they don't recognize them. And you have to remember, Russia, you know, China doesn't recognize South Ossetia. China doesn't recognize Transnistria. Right. And that since the fall of the Soviet Union, there have been various territories that Russia recognizes that the rest of the world doesn't. South Ossetia is one of them. Transnistria is another one. And now we got Donetsk and Luhansk. But you'll notice China didn't, you know, pile everything onto Russia's doorstep. They didn't immediately jump on top of Russia about this. They were calling for de-escalation negotiations, you know, you know. So, you know, that's, you know, China has wants to have an economic relationship with Ukraine. And uh, it's getting to be either or. It's starting to look like you either do business with Ukraine or you do business with Russia. Well, China wants to do business with both. Uh, so they're going to have to, you know, you know, they're not going all in and recognizing Donetsk and Luhansk like Venezuela and Nicaragua and some of those other countries have. So there you go. Our government is fascist. Well, here's the thing. The U.S. government, fascism is a stage of capitalism and decay. It's when liberalism collapses into illiberalism. It's, you know, a form of Bonapartism where the government mobilizes, you know, mass destruction in order to stabilize capitalism. It's a form of Bonapartism where, you know, the population is mobilized around mass destruction to save capitalism. Um, the USA is aligned with fascists in Ukraine. And there are, you know, there are fascistic elements in the United States. I mean, the synthetic left, the way they operate is very fascistic. Uh, the way these white supremacist groups operate is very fascistic. But we are not in a state of full-on fascism in the United States. If we were in a state of full-on fascism, I wouldn't be able to make streams like this, right? They'd drag me away in the middle of the night. They'd kill me. Um, you know, we're not in that situation yet. Um, you know, we still we still have freedom of speech to some degree, and we still have freedom of assembly and and such. Fascism is when the capitalist crisis has gotten so bad that imperialist capitalist countries degenerate into full blown you know authoritarian regimes, and they start just destroying things and eating their society alive, engaging in mass destruction in order to save capitalism. Um, Canada's recent actions fascist. All right. All right. The majority of Americans support the NATO and love and Americans love war. Well, it is true. The majority of Americans, if you ask them, they support the NATO alliance. And I think that's just that most Americans think, hey, we ought to get along with France. We ought to get along with Germany. We ought to get along with Britain. Uh, you know, we ought to get along with Turkey. So why not have an alliance with them? Right. I don't think most 
most Americans don't realize that NATO was formed as an anti-communist alliance to suppress socialism around the world. Most Americans don't realize that. They don't realize that NATO has bases across the planet and stuff. Most Americans are like, oh, there's this alliance with all these European countries, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Why don't we be part of it? I don't think any progress will be made till boomy boomers are gone, especially a communist movement will never succeed. How, how, um, okay, hmm, I can write that down. All right. Progress possible before boomers are are gone. So propagandized. That's communism. All right, wrote it down. So yeah, we're not uh, we're not in the state of fascism yet. Belt and Road is it imperialism? No, because the Belt and Road goes into countries and helps their economy to flourish. When China starts doing business with a country as part of the Belt and Road, it doesn't get poorer. Domestic businesses don't all go out of business. It's the opposite. The country's economy begins to flourish, and more domestic businesses arise, and the economy of the country gets stronger. And you know, Chinese businesses make more money, but so do the businesses of that respective country. The relationship, imperialism de denotes a relationship, the export of capital, where basically the, you know, the imperialist homelands, businesses go in and crush all the businesses of, of the country that's being, being colonized or being, you know, being dominated by imperialism, the export of capital. And that's not what China does. They do the opposite. You look at the African countries that do business with China, China goes in there and it actually helps a lot of Africans to start their own businesses. It still helps the economy to flourish stimulates the infrastructure, the state structure, the country. It's fascism on the horizon for the USA. All right. Fascism on the horizon for the USA. Question mark. All right. Are you accepting calls tonight? No, I am not accepting calls tonight. We'll do that another night. We'll do that another night, but not tonight. All right. Um, all right. Uh, the Belt and Road is not imperialism. Bernie Sanders' statement on, on Russia, it was an awful statement. It was awful. I mean, he's accusing Russia of engaging in aggression against Ukraine. It's not. I've explained. I spent the whole opening of the live explaining why that's not the case. But this is, I mean, Bernie on foreign policy stuff is pretty bad. I mean, during the 80s, he was pretty good. But now he's, you know, he's really gotten bad. And it's disappointing. It's disappointing to see how Bernie Sanders has developed. I mean, and, you know, I mean, I'm glad that he's become the voice of economic populism. And, and you know, but he's disappointing in a lot of ways. Um, the CIA and media blaming Russia for Havana syndrome. Why? Why would, what motivation would Russia have for diplomats in Cuba to get sick and get diseases? I, I, what possible motivation could there be for that? I mean, that is beyond me, right? So it's like Cuba is an ally of Russia and the United States had good relations with Cuba. Things between the USA and we're getting better. Wouldn't that be better for Russia? Russia would benefit from that as well. If things between Russia or between Cuba and the United States are getting better, then things between Russia and the United States are kind of by de facto getting better, right? And then, you know, a business partner and an ally of, of Russia is having is not being threatened and not being hit with blockade from Russia. That would be good for Russia. So why would Russia want to sabotage, you know, the relation? That doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, but then again, a lot of these allegations they make don't make any sense. I mean, they've repeatedly accused Russia of staging false flags in Ukraine. All right. Smedley Butler in the business plot. All right. All right. But they've repeated, they re repeatedly, you know, repeatedly accused Russia of, of staging false flags. And I want to know about this because false flags, we're told that they never happen. You know, they're all fake. They're all hoaxes. That's Alex Jones. You know, uh, you know, if anyone says false flag, immediately stop listening to them is what we're told. 
Um, but uh, but yet uh, now they're accusing Russia of staging false flags. And oh, okay, yeah, Russia does that. Russia does that. Well, you know, I mean, there you go. I mean, I mean, it just shows how hypocritical they are. May 2nd, Odessa conflicts. That was the horrendous massacre, right? Wasn't May 2nd the massacre in Odessa uh, that happened? I mean, you can go read the details of it. Um, but I believe if I'm not if I'm not correct, is May 2nd, let me just Google that. I want to get it right. Wasn't that May 2nd the, the massacre with the burning building, you know, the, where, where they were, you know, yeah. Um, May 2nd, 2014, um, you know, um, was when 46 anti-Maidan protests were killed. It was, yeah, in the center of trade unions. It was a horrendous event where a building was caught on fire. People were trapped in a burning building. There's video of it. It was a horrendous, horrendous event. Um, a horrendous event where these fascists slaughtered uh, a bunch of uh, a bunch of Ukrainian communists. Uh, it was awful, awful. Any good books on Operation Gladio or Congress for Cultural Freedom? All right, good books on Operation Gladio and Gladio and Congress for Cultural Freedom. All right, wrote it down. All right. It was a really horrendous event. And I mean, the details of it are just utterly horrendous. All right. Should tankies use the term global South? You know, I mean, it's not the worst term. Sometimes you have to use words like that and phrases like that, just so people know what you're talking about, right? Because people don't know what you're talking about. If that's the most commonly used term. You have to use it. I don't like it. Is North Korea part of the global South? I mean, you know, is it? I don't know. Right. I mean, it, I mean, when you say global South, you're talking about the first world and the third world. You're talking about the imperialist countries and the colonized countries of the world. So global South is not the, I mean, it doesn't capture the essence of what's going on, but sometimes you do have to use their, their words, but I would argue that it's not the best phrase to use. No, but I don't like to police the phrase words people use because sometimes you have to use different words so people can listen to you. So, you know, it's not like if someone says that word, I'm not going to go, Oh, but at the same time, uh, there you go. All right. All right. Western leftists are still social chauvinists. Yep. You know, the pro-imperialist propaganda, they're getting a lot slicker by making imperialism seem woke and all about human rights and such. The imperialists are very good. I mean, they're they're cultivating a layer of middle class professionals who think it's their job uh, to go around promoting whatever the latest imperialist talking points are. I mean, that's why the American university system is such a such a shit show. Right. Colleges used to be places where people thought you know, and went for free thought, right? And they learned to criticize things. Because average Americans were like, this is my country, right or wrong. If you don't like it here, move to another country. But people who went to college said, well, maybe the Soviet Union has some good points and all that. It used to be the academic institutions were better. Now they're the opposite. Uh, now, you know, the colleges and universities are very much centers of, of social chauvinism, where they train you to be pro-imperialist. That's why I was miserable in college. That's why people I know are miserable in college, you know? The effects of canceling Nord Stream 2. Canceling Nord Stream 2. All right. Wrote it down. All right. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, as leftism becomes identified with middle class academics, and you know, it also becomes, you know, you know, a college thing. And yeah, it's becoming more social chauvinist. That's why we've got to get out of the movement to the masses. Um, Ukrainian SSR was built on uniting nationalities. That's good. Yeah. And that was one thing about the Soviet Union was they were constantly bringing nationalities together. It's a shame that, 
Ukraine at this point, you know, has has gotten the way it is, right? You know, there you go. What motivates Zelensky, Jewish guy supporting Nazis? Well, the thing is, Zelensky, you know, I mean, you know, I believe he was a comedian and he's kind of a populist. And that when he came in, he was seen as not fully in bed with these far right groups. And that I think that, you know, again, you know, he he is to some degree or other holding them back. And they're constantly threatening to overthrow him and they're constantly accusing him of selling out Euromaiden and that he's in a weird spot, you know, where he's constantly being pushed on by the far right. They protest against him. They want another Euromaiden to overthrow him. They think he's a phony. And so he's constantly having to do stuff to like prove them wrong. Right. And that's happening with Zelensky. Right. It's not right to characterize Zelensky as, as a Nazi. He's not. Right. Zelensky is a guy who got elected after a coup that involved a lot of Nazis. And the Nazi elements in Ukraine are constantly putting pressure on him. And he's constantly I think that on some level, he just kind of wants things to be stable. But he's being pushed on by these far right groups and that Ukraine, that's kind of the situation where he would like, you know, Zelensky, he's not he's not pro Russia. He's certainly not pro-Russia, but he's not where these ultra-nationalists are. He's a little more moderate. And they sense that, and they are constantly threatening him. Um, and you'll notice that, like Zelensky, he has stood up to Biden a little bit on this. He said Biden is overplaying the danger of war. But every so often, Zelensky will, will say, you know, no, and he will, he will push back a little bit against this. Now, overall, he's the head of the Ukrainian state. He's being pushed on by the far right. And he, you know, he sits, you know, I mean, he does have an anti-Russian perspective for the most part. but. You know, again, he's not as far right as some of these elements are. And he occasionally he pushes back against Biden a little bit. It's complicated. It's not that simple. All right. Does Russia support LGBT rights? What does that mean? What does that mean? Right. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, it depends what you mean by that. Right. I mean, Russia does have their homosexual propaganda law. It's illegal to promote homosexuality uh, in a way that people under the age of 18 could see it. Um, you know, uh, in some regions of Russia that are historically Islamic, uh, from my understanding, there is, you know, there's some, you know, a lot more homophobia and such. Um, but, you know, if you go to St. Petersburg, there's gay bars, there's gay people walking around, you know, I mean, you know, in Moscow, there's gay nightclubs and gay people. There's people, I mean, there, there are gay people in Russia who live their lives and they aren't, you know, dragged away and killed for being gay. Uh, it's a pretty low standard, I know, but, you know, I mean, it's not as, it's not as simple as you might think, right? I mean, yes, Russia is a deeply conservative, traditional country. They do not have gay marriage. They don't have gay marriage in Russia and they, they will not anytime soon. I'll tell you that much, uh, you know, and there's a lot of Russians who do feel that homosexuality is wrong. Uh, who do feel that homosexuality is is not acceptable. And they, you know, they have that homosexual propaganda law that they passed. And, you know, there is a lot of homophobia in Russia. But there's also a lot of gay people in Russia. There's gay nightclubs, there's gay Russians. It's more complicated than that. So, you know, but yes, Russia tends to be a conservative place. And, you know, compared to the United States, there's a lot less tolerance for homosexuality in Russia than in the USA. Um, but that, you know, to say there are no gay people in Russia, that's false to say that all gay people in Russia are persecuted and killed. That's false. Right. Um, so, you know, again, 
nothing is ever as simple as you think it is. Uh, and, you know, there are many different people in Russia, many different backgrounds. There's rural populations that are more conservative. There's urban folks that are more liberal. There's younger folks that are more liberal. There's, you know, older folks that are more traditional and conservative. There are different nationalities in Russia. There are different cultures. Some people are more religious than others. You know, just like the United States. I mean, is gay rights in the United States the same everywhere? Well, we do have gay marriage for the whole country because of uh, the Supreme Court. But that's a very new development. Um, but, you know, I mean, being gay in rural Alabama and being gay in New York City is a very different thing, right? That a gay person in New York City is going to be, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty widely accepted. But if you're gay in Alabama, even now, even when there's, you know, even as much as things have changed the last decade, it's going to be different. Russia is a big country. I don't speak for Russia. I do not represent Russia. I don't speak Russian. I'm from Ohio. I grew up in Ohio. I'm from a really small town in Ohio. I lived in Cleveland for a number of years. Then I lived in New York City. I've lived in New York City for the last 12 years. So I don't represent Russia. If you want to, you should ask a Russian that. Now, I gave you the answer that I understand, but there, may, there might be a Russian person who's watching this right now and cringing and go, Caleb, you said it wrong because I'm not Russian. I may work for a Russian TV network, but I don't represent Russia. I represent Caleb. Okay. So, you know, you know, I, I don't know what kind of answer you're looking for on that question. Again, I, I, some of these questions I get, I have to be careful. I, I, I come at them with a little bit of suspicion because there are so many people who take clips of me and try to say that I said something I didn't say and all of that. And right now, you know, right now the memo has gone out. That's why I'm not taking calls tonight, mind you. The memo has gone out to go after me right now, right? A lot of people are watching and I love all of you watching right now. And all of you, most of you watching now are just fans of the show, want to hear what I have to say. But I can guarantee you that there are some people watching this right now who have bad intentions. Look, there are people who are, I mean, I don't want to harp on this too much, but there are people with bad intentions who are probably watching right now. And so when I get asked questions like this, I, I answer them carefully, but I also like have to emphasize like, like, okay, like, again, I don't speak for Russia. I've been there a few times. I work at a Russian company. I sympathize with them in their struggle against U.S. imperialism. I've studied their history to some degree or other, but I don't represent Russia, right? Uh, so don't, don't, you know, don't interpret me as being like a Russian diplomat or something. I ain't. All right. Putin said Stalin believed the USSR should be centralized. Well, Stalin was forced to centralize the USSR as part of the Second World War. I mean, they were moving people around on the basis of their nationality. I mean, if you look at what Russia and the Soviet Union went through during the Second World War, it required a huge degree of centralization. So, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, yes, Stalin did centralize it. Um, and, you know, a lot of the movies that came out during the Stalin years uh, did emphasize kind of great Russian patriotism. Uh, you can talk about, you know, Ivan the Terrible, Alexander Nevsky, even the, um, what is it, the, the Russian national, the Soviet anthem, right? Unbreakable union of freeborn republics, great Russia unites us now all into one. Um, now, I, I don't know if that's the correct translation. That's one translation I've heard, right? You know, is that, you know, what is it? Unbreakable union of freeborn republics, great Russia unites us now onto one. That's kind of a centralizing thing. Now, I don't know if that's an accurate translation. I mean, the way, what is it? The way Paul Robeson used to sing the song was like, how did Paul, uh, united forever in friendship and labor, 
our mighty republics shall ever endure. So maybe that's more accurate. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, DHS branding, miss, dis, I don't even know what that is. I don't know. I don't know what miss dismal information is. So I don't know what that is, LP. So I can't comment on that. Miss dismal. I don't even know what that is. All right. Um, all right. Next question. Forest management in the USSR. There's actually a great book published by a German communist group on that topic. Uh, there's a German communist group uh, called the, what is it? The MLPD, Marxist-Leninist Party of Deutschland. And their leader is a guy named Stefan Engel. And Stefan Engel wrote a book called Catastrophe Alert. It's about the environmental question. Um, and I believe that book has a lot about forest management in the Soviet Union and such. So, you know, if you want to, you want a book on that, about forestry in the USSR, that would be a good place to start. Um, you know, but there's a lot about the five-year plans and about the policies of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot out there about the five-year plans in the Soviet Union. Forestry is not an area of my expertise, um, but, uh, I believe, yeah, that book Stefan Engel wrote has a lot about the Soviet Union's forest management policies. There's a lot written about like the five-year plans. I think, you know, there's there was all kinds of American technicians who went over to the Soviet Union during that time and wrote about their experience. So there's probably a lot out there. You know, I mean, if you if you check out Sidney and Beatrice Webb and they're writing, uh, you know, Soviet, Soviet communism, a new civilization, uh, they get into that, I think. So there you go. All right. Wealth and socialism. Look, socialism does not oppose wealth. Socialism opposes exploitation. Socialism opposes the capitalist system of profits and command. Socialism does not oppose wealth. The goal of socialism is to create so much wealth that the very basis, the very need for a state breaks down. That's the goal of socialism, is to build a society where there is so much abundance that the need for all divisions and social hierarchies and the government itself can fade away. So, you know, I'm not opposed to taxing billionaires and making them pay their fair share of taxes and, you know, using the money to provide social programs. That's a great demand to make on the capitalist state. Um, you know, I'm not opposed to, um, you know, to, you know, other progressive moves. But at the end of the day, we are not against wealth. We don't want anyone to be poorer. So it's fair. And this idea that to be a socialist means you shouldn't have wealth. That's that's not correct. Uh, that's just not correct. Read Critique of the Goitha Program. Our goal is to centralize the means of production and operate them so efficiently uh, that so much abundance can be created uh, that the narrow horizon of bourgeois right can be crossed. I admit this is the first time I heard the Soviet national anthem it was on the Rocky movies. That's funny. Stalin studied to be a priest in seminary school. Is it true he became religious again during World War II and opened the Orthodox churches? Stalin became religious again during World War II opened churches. All right, writing it down. I think Alpi was referring to uh, was referring to Department of Homeland Security equating misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation with terrorism. Okay, all right. Well, I haven't read about that. I mean, I mean, you know, that's not a legal definition. That's just a statement they made, like linking that to terrorism. That's not a legal definition of terrorism, right? That, that means they didn't make a law saying that. That means that they, in some document they wrote, they said those things are similar. I don't know the context of them making that statement, but if there was a legal definition saying that misinformation was terrorism, that would have huge implications for the U.S. Constitution. But if they just made some statement that was like kind of Orwellian, not the first time, right, after 9-11, 
you'll remember after 9-11, Americans were told to watch what they say by the U.S. government. So there you go. All right. Uh, but yeah, Can they, uh, Canada's recent actions, are they fascist? Well, again, actions are not fascist. Fascism is capitalism entering a state of decay. I condemn the heavy repression rained down on the trucker convoy. Right, what's being done to them, trampling them with horses, freezing their bank accounts, denying bail to the protest organizers. If you're a progressive, even if you don't agree with a single thing that these Canadian truckers have said, even if you denounce the entire movement, you should be opposed to this. You know, freezing people's bank accounts just because of their political views. Not even, you know, it's, it's up to a bank exec. You don't even get a hearing. You can't, you know, if they if you're in Canada right now and your bank freezes your account because they think you're a trucker protester. You don't get an appeal. You can't go to the bank and be like, I'm not actually part of that. They say, well, we think you are, so you're screwed. I mean, it's unbelievable. Can you believe this? That you imagine going to the bank one day, putting your ATM card in there, and the bank says, no, we froze your account because we think you're a protester. That has to be opposed, right? And if you think, oh, well, that's okay. They're doing it to right-wingers. They can do it to us just as much. And if we were actually a threat to the status quo, if the left got its shit together and was actually opposing the status quo, they would be doing it to us. Right now, leftism is dominated by pro-imperialist voices, so there's no need to do it to us. But, you know, you got to stand against it. Trampling people with horses, got to stand against it. Got to stand against it. Um, you know, got to stand against it. Um, and, yeah, there you go. All righty. Um, progressive. Is progress possible before boomers are gone? They're so propagandized against communism. I'm going to disagree with you there. All right. I'll just say this, right? That, okay. A lot of boomers, they just have this knee jerk reaction to hammers and sickles, right? To, you know, to being against communism. That's true. But boomer leftists are more anti-imperialist and more anti-war than millennial leftists are. A lot of millennial leftists, you know, Vietnam is like something they never heard of. Even the Iraq war stuff, right? I got involved during the protests against the Iraq war. These people, a lot of the Zoomers, you know, Iraq was invaded when they were three or something. So. I've noticed, you know, a lot of Jimmy Dore's audience are boomers, right? And a lot of the folks that watch anti-war podcasts and stuff are boomers, right? Jesse Ventura, Oliver Stone, uh, you know, those folks, you know, they're boomers and they're more anti-imperialist. So it's, you know, six, six one way, half a dozen the other, right? But yes, a lot of boomers, they just have this anti-communist hangout. But among boomers that are left wing, they're way more anti-war because they can remember Vietnam and they remember the Cold War and the horrendous militarism of U.S. society. Um, you know, whereas a lot of Zoomers, you know, the fact that Vosh can do his thing and not get called out for it I and mean, just be calling himself a socialist. And he's like a pro-war hawk at this point, um, you know, um, Haitian and Puerto Rican protests. All right. Ugh, I'm fading fast, folks. I'm fading fast. All right. Um, so there you go. All right. I, I'm going to disagree with the person who put that and point out that among, uh, well, I, I, I said it already, is fascism on the horizon in the USA. All capitalist societies are going toward fascism as capitalist crisis progresses. We are in a crisis caused by overproduction, right? The fact that at this point, uh, you know, the Computer revolution has exacerbated the problem of the tendency of the falling rate of profits and overproduction, that poverty 
is created by abundance under capitalism. The irrational capitalist system leads toward greater instability and greater crisis spawned by technological innovation. That the more wealth that's produced, the poorer people get under capitalism. The more efficient it becomes to produce goods, the poorer people get under capitalism. Because of that problem, every capitalist society is naturally moving toward fascism. Because fascism is the only way they can resolve that problem. So there you go. Uh, did Khrushchev give Ukraine independence? Where do people get these questions? Did Khrushchev give Ukraine independence? All right. So every capitalist society is more or less moving toward fascism. Now there are divisions in the ruling class and factions that, that want to move in this direction or that direction. There are Bonapartist struggles. But at the end of the day, capitalism leads to greater and greater crisis. And the crisis then leads to fascism and war. Fascism and war is the natural outcome of capitalist crisis. So if you want to get rid of fascism, you have to get rid of capitalism. Go read Dimitrov, Georgi Dimitrov's great speeches about this, that this is the scientific Marxist understanding that fascism is capitalism and decay. All right. Next question. Smedley Butler in the business plot. It sounds like a rock band. Going to go listen to Smedley Butler in the business plot, followed by Herman and the Hermits. Now, Smedley Butler was a U.S. Marine Corps general. And he uh, basically exposed that generals were plotting to overthrow Roosevelt, that Henry Morgan and uh, a lot of wealthy capitalists were trying to overthrow Roosevelt. 1934, there was a talk of a a coup against Roosevelt. um, And Smedley Butler blew the whistle on it. And there were congressional hearings about it. Uh, And he basically exposed that a number of generals were trying to overthrow Roosevelt. And the U.S. media tried to laugh the whole thing off and say it was all ridiculous. It wasn't true. But it I mean, it was very much true. It's not every day a U.S. Marine Corps general comes out and says, oh, just so you know, uh, I've been approached by people who want me to overthrow the government. Uh, it was a very serious thing. And then later, Smedley Butler US, quit the U.S. military and became a pacifist. Um, and he wrote a book called War is a Racket. Uh, War is a Racket um, was a book that, that he wrote. Um, and he became a Quaker. And a socialist. He was never a communist, but he was a socialist and a Quaker, a Quaker pacifist. And his book, War is a Racket, exposes how war, in a lot of ways, is a, uh, a money-making uh, endeavor for big corporations. Um, it's a great book, War is a Racket. Um, you know, so there you go. There you go. Good books on Operation Gladio and the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Well, a great book that talks about Operation Gladio is a favorite of mine. It's called The Yankee and Cowboy War by Carl Oglesby. But there's books. There's a book called Gladio. It's just all about you know, Operation Gladio. There's a book called The CIA's Greatest Hits that kind of goes over the CIA's operations after World War II, The CIA's Greatest Hits. Um, I'm trying to think other books. Uh, I think uh, Killing Hope by Bill was it Bill Blum? Uh, he wrote a book called Killing Hope, uh, which is about um, CIA operations. And I think he talks about Operation Gladio. Uh, books on the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Uh, narco-primitivism. All right. All right. Writing it down. Again, I'm fading fast, folks. So the answers are going to start getting faster because I'm fading. Um, you know, uh, uh, Congress for Cultural Freedom. Great book is called Finks, uh, How the CIA Tricked the World's Greatest Writers by Joel Whitney, The Cultural Cold War. That's a very good book on the Congress for Cultural Freedom program. Um, There is a number of other ones, um, but those, uh, you know, um, The New York Intellectuals by Alan Wald. That's another good book on there. 
All right. Next question. We're moving right along. What are the effects of canceling Nord Stream 2? Well, it's already canceled. It's not on, right? It's been built. It's finished built, but the German government won't certify it and they won't turn it on. What does that mean? I mean, you built the damn pipeline. It doesn't just go away, right? The pipeline doesn't just go away. Until they start taking it apart, turning it on is going to be an option. So, you know, canceling it, you know, that's what Biden said is we're there won't be any gas going through the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Well, you know, give it time, right? Give it a year or two. If it stays intact, if they don't like take it apart and, you know, relations between the USA and Germany go sour, which they already are, right? You remember Germany refused to send any lethal weapons to the Azov Battalion and to the Ukrainian government. They sent helmets, but they wouldn't send guns. And the Germans are not fully where Biden is on this whole Ukraine thing. You know, give it a couple of years, uh, you know, it might be turned on. You know, but but yeah, now if they take it apart, obviously, then they'd have to rebuild it in order to turn it on. But the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is completed. Germany at this point is not turning it on. We'll see what happens. Right. Biden says it won't go on. He's going to make sure it doesn't go on. There's sanctions or whatever to make sure it doesn't go on. Seems like a pretty big waste, doesn't it? Building a big natural gas pipeline across Europe and then it doesn't turn on. And uh, the Germans, I think, you know, there's a lot of Germans who are looking at their gas bill and going, okay. Is this worth it? Is it worth paying, you know, twice as much for natural gas just because, you know, I'm told on TV that Putin's no good? Is it worth it? And, you know, okay, it's there. Now, as long as it's there, in theory, the Germans could change policy and turn it back on. So we shall see. We shall see what that means. All right. Is it true that Stalin became religious during World War II and opened churches? He did open the churches. During World War II, the Russian Orthodox Church was restored. Now, did Stalin become religious during World War II? I don't know. I haven't seen proof of that. That is widely believed in Russia. Uh, you know, Stalin did study in a seminary. That's true. He was in seminary school before he became a communist. Many said that his, his you know, and I think, what is his name? The, uh, the writer, Simon Sebag Montefiore, said that Stalin's style, his, his speaking style in preaching communism was a lot like some kind of preacher or priest. It had a religious tone to it. Um, and that, uh, you know, it is widely believed in Russia uh, that they have a story about, you know, about Stalin, um, you know, be, you know, converting to Christianity during World War II. Uh, that officially was not the position of the Soviet state. Officially, Stalin was a Marxist atheist, um, you know. And so that has never been validated or confirmed. But that's a thing that is widely believed in Russia among, uh, you know, Russian Orthodox uh, believers. There are many Russian Orthodox believers who believe that. Now, that said, there are also many Russian Orthodox believers who don't believe that, who believe Stalin was no good, who believe that Stalin was anti-Christian and communism is the antichrist, etc. Uh, there's, there's some division, right? You will find in many Russian Orthodox churches, there are pictures of Stalin. But in many Russian Orthodox churches, there would never be a picture of Stalin. There are many Russian Orthodox folks who hate Stalin. And there are many Russian Orthodox Christians who love Stalin. There are differences about that among Russian Orthodox Christians. That's what you have to remember, you know. So, you know, but uh, but among the Russian Orthodox Christians who like Stalin, many believe that he converted to Christianity during World War II, and that's why he reopened the churches. I have never seen substantial proof of that, um, and I don't think they have either. It's just kind of a legend uh, that they believe, but it is true he did bring the church back. That's true. All right. Caleb, I heard you talk about the Club of Rome. It reminded me of people, leader of international, um, a Japanese businessman and con, con man. Well, I don't know about, about that, that group you just mentioned, but we can talk about the Club of Rome 
briefly. All righty. Uh, protests in Haiti and Puerto Rico. Well, both of those countries have been devastated by austerity. Capitalist austerity has had a horrendous effect on the people of Haiti. It's had a horrendous effect on the people of Puerto Rico. I mean, you know, the university cuts and, the, you know, the power grid that went off in Puerto Rico and and then in Haiti, I mean, Haiti, free market neoliberalism has just devastated that island I mean, over and over and over again. The people there have been devastated. I've interviewed many times on this show, my good friend, Danny Shaw, who has described the circumstances in Haiti. He goes to visit there and join the solidarity movements there and the conditions in Haiti are not good. And you'll notice those protests are getting absolutely no attention in mainstream U.S. media, right? Oh, my goodness. Protests in Russia get lots of attention. Protests in China. Lots of attention. Protests in Venezuela, but oh, Puerto Rico, which is technically part of the United States, big protests, ignore it, right? You know, um, Haiti, country, it's free market and under the grip of U.S. imperialism. Oh, you know, no information. So there you go. All righty. Uh, did Khrushchev give Ukraine independence? No. Khrushchev, at that point, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, Okay. There were different republics in the Soviet Union. It was the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Now, Ukraine was a Soviet republic, and it was made that by Lenin, and Stalin had it as a Soviet republic. Stalin centralized things a lot more, you know, especially to win World War II, but even before that, there was more centralization under Stalin. Um, but, but under Khrushchev, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. However, Khrushchev added Crimea to Ukraine. Right. Crimea had never been considered part of Ukraine until Khrushchev came along. And so that's what Khrushchev did in Ukraine. He added Crimea. But no, he didn't give them independence. That's not what he did. And Khrushchev, I believe, was Ukrainian, if I'm not mistaken. He was ethnically Ukrainian. So there you go. All right. Anarcho-primitivism. It's utter silliness. Utter silliness. Right. Not only is it like, you know, ridiculous to think that we'd be better without technology, uh, but it's also the people advocating it don't really want that either. Right. They don't really want to have no electricity. They don't really want to have no running water. They might enjoy camping out, but it's like you're going to camp out all the time. Really? Really? Seriously? You're going to go live with the Amish or you're going to go live, you know, in the woods with a stick or something like, I mean, come on, come on, come on. And that's where a lot of politics starts to get a little LARPy and silly. OK. And and like, I guess the Unabomber. Right. He was an anarcho primitivist. Right. He was he wrote that manifesto opposing society. Come on. This isn't even serious politics. You know, it's Malthusian in a lot of ways. They see humanity as a scourge on the planet. They, I mean, it's 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 the fantasies of rich kids. It's the fantasies of rich kids. Right. Rich kids that are spoiled and mad at their parents and want to have a big adventure and live out in the wild. And no one can tell them what to do. I don't know. You ever watch, there's an episode of Third Rock from the Sun. You ever watch that? It was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid, Third Rock from the Sun. And uh, John Lithgow plays the main character on that show. And he's like, you know, he's this kind of a socially awkward character who's actually an alien or whatever, but it's, it's a long story. But anyway, there's one episode of that show where he's like camping and he's fighting with the other people. So he, he, um, you know, he goes, you know, he gets lost in the woods and they're looking for him. And then they find some like Boy Scouts. And they're like, oh, have you seen, you know, this guy? And they, they say, oh, do you mean the king of the revolution? And they're like, we hope not. And it's like, he's being an anarcho primitivist. He's got a bunch of Boy Scouts around him. And he's like, you know, got a, you know, a headband on and he's declaring independence from the Soviet Union. And it's really ridiculous, really ridiculous. All right. Assadism, the alienated labor has acquired a whole new meaning. 
and I can't get it out of my head without reading my Posadism, really? Posadism is kind of a joke. It's a an obscure Trotskyism from Latin America uh, that um, you know believes in UFOs and stuff like that. So there you go. All right, um, the Club of Rome. The Club of Rome. Well, the Club of Rome was a group of environmentalists uh, who wrote a book called The Limits to Growth. It's a think tank based in Italy. That's why it's called the Club of Rome. And they argued uh, that we were going to run out of natural resources and, uh, you know, the, you know, the planet is going to collapse and the environment is going to collapse. We're going to run out of natural resources uh, because of, uh, you know, human beings are, you know, using too much stuff, basically, is what they argued. The Club of Rome. And, uh their book, you know, their, the limits to growth. It came out, and it, it, you know, it was it was wrong. I mean, it was not accurate. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, uh, and a lot of people have pointed out that yes, if we still kept acquiring oil in the same way we acquire it now, yeah, we would have run out. But we've changed the way we acquire oil. We have deep sea drilling now. We have hydraulic fracking now, and that there are minerals that were worthless at the time that book came out that are now super valuable because they're used in computer technology. And that, yeah, that human beings change the way they interact with their environment, right? We don't use resources in the same way. Yes, if we just kept using resources the same way we use them now, we would run out pretty soon and we would have a problem. But humans are always reinventing their relationship with Mother Nature, right? The whole existence of human civilization has been reinventing our relationship with nature. And we need to keep doing that. We need to get beyond fossil fuels. We need fusion energy. Right. You know, there is a problem with global warming and climate change. I don't deny that at all. Don't deny it at all. But the idea that we're going to solve it by going backward and reducing consumption, ridiculous. That's not going to happen. Human beings don't move backward. That's not how we work as a species. We are tool makers. We are inventors. Thank you, American worker, for your super chat. Um, so there you go. All right, folks, we're going to end here because my voice is just about dead and it's been a long day and it's going to be a long day tomorrow because we're in the middle of a global crisis. But focus on the good. Be happy about the people of Luhansk and Donetsk getting their recognition. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists, people of all countries must get prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists, people of all countries must get prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night. Good night. Good night.